while Ari's doing that, Mom, make sure your hearing aids are off because I'm hearing the conversation twice and I think it's coming from you. They're, my hearing aids are far, far away. Weird. Hi, I'm Pastor Elise. And I'm Pastor Mary. Welcome to You're On Mute. Well, hey, everyone, and welcome to You're on Mute with Pastors Elise and Mary. Uh, we have a very, very special episode today. We are joined by the Stern Freed family all the way from Chicago, Illinois. Um, we go way, way back. We go way, way back with this crew. Um, so we're going to let them introduce themselves really quick and, and kind of tell the story of how uh, the Andersons and Stern Freeds have been connected over the over over the millennia <laughs> well at least decades and i have known the anderson clan for 30 years um i met frank anderson pastor frank when i first started working at the university of illinois at chicago uh late 91 early 92 and it on a a program honoring Martin Luther King Jr. And we also collaborated on designing new student orientation programs on diversity and inclusion. And at the time I was the rape victim advocate for the entire campus. And one day I forgot my keys in my office and my roommate was out of town. And I realized this while I was riding the L train home with Frank and Frank said, why don't you just stay over at my house? And he and I didn't know each other all that well. So <laughs> I guess it was kind of a leap of faith. And, <laughs> and that started off a three decade long friendship where I think that year was the first year I was the Christmas Jew where yeah. I would come over for the holidays. I would attend two different Christmas services um one for each pastor and <laughs> and it was amazing and uh they were the people i most wanted to introduce my now husband ari to when we started dating they were they were my family in chicago mm -hmm. and it was it's it's been one of the most foundational relationships of my life they participated in our wedding they participated in our daughter noah's bat mitzvah and as a Jewish person feeling very wary often of Christians, especially having been evangelized to and uh, experiencing some, let's just say toxic Christianity in my early years, the idea that we could form such a respectful bond has been inspirational to me. So I will stop there. I'm still in sexual violence prevention education, I should say, and I've been doing that ever since I met Frank, so mm -hmm. a long time. And now I'll pass that along to Ari. I'm Ari Freed, uh, and I met you all in around 2004, and yeah, got to do this Christmas tradition with you. <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I, hope you're, I hope you're okay with it. <laughs> oh, it's great. 2002, actually. Really? Yeah, because we started dating in 2002. Oh, right, of course, yeah, 2002, yeah, at your, mm -hmm. at your apartment over there. And right. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's terrific to be a mascot. Um, <laughs> mascot? 
Yeah, the Christmas trees. Oh, okay, I was doing mascot. Yeah. <laughs> a costume that I don't know about. It's been very welcoming. I um I work in educational leadership, and uh and I love you guys, and uh and I love your podcast, and I learn when I listen to you about relationships and about Christianity and about everything. Yeah, thanks for being such a good listener um, to the podcast. That's really that's so special to me that you do that. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, Noah. <laughs> yeah. Hi, my name is Noah Sternfried, um, and I am a full-time high school student at the moment and do not have a career. Um, but <laughs> so I can't. Yeah, I'm not in sexual violence prevention education or <laughs> educational leadership. Yeah, um, but I'm also Jewish, and I've known you since 2007 when I was born. Born, yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, woohoo. Um, sorry, I just woke up. <laughs> Hi. Well, you're the only awesome. one that's known us your entire life. Yeah. yeah. Right. That's always a cool thing to be able to say. And so, yes, we're... Um, yeah, uh, we keep our friendship going. Sometimes we only see each other at Christmas. We're going to see each other at Christmas again this year when they come to uh, come to our house here in Columbia. So that's going to be awesome. But one of the things that we um, ended up having in common this year is that the Sternfried family took a trip to Israel, Palestine in the summer, wasn't it? The summer, yep, right? And August. Yes, and then Elise and I uh, did the same thing with a different group, of course, um, in uh, very end of October, but mostly it was November. So, mm -hmm. so we thought it might be interesting, because uh, we've done this personally and privately already, um, to share with you the perspective of visiting what's often called the Holy Land, at least in the tr Christian community, um, with uh, two different religions experiencing it, because as you can imagine, the kind of tour that we did uh, and they did had some similarities, but um, uh, we also talked about what was a highlight for each of us, and it's it's um, very different. So could you all tell us, like, you know, who was leading the group? Who did you go with? So one of the interesting <laughs> things about this trip was that it was a prototype a couple times over. It was the first time that uh, our relatively young spiritual community, Mishkan, here in Chicago, which um, is more or less a Jewish congregation, only in the most expansive terms. Um, there are people who are not Jewish at all who come to it sometimes regularly and even come to high holiday services. And the, the founding rabbi, Rabbi Lizzie, uh, had wanted to do this for a while, this trip to Israel. Um, hadn't done it for Mishkan yet. And she planned a collaboration uh, at first with two other congregations on the West Coast, and then it dropped to one just because of interest. So we worked with uh, Kavanaugh, which is in Seattle, and went over there. So that's the first part of the prototype. The second part was that the two tour guides that led our, our tour, one was a Jewish Israeli woman who had befriended uh, a woman who was a Palestinian Christian woman living in Bethlehem in, in the West Bank, um, or at least her family lives there. Does she live there too? I don't think so. I think she was in Israel. Okay. Um, and they had wanted to put together 
together a, a tour that was themed on multiple narratives, that there are, are many different narratives that construct what Israel is. And I think all of us came back simultaneously transformed and, um, <laughs> to borrow a word from Maimonides, perplexed, um, hopelessly confused about what we had experienced and learned, so much so that when uh, Rabbi Lizzie giving out what it was like to have gone on this trip, and she already had, I think, two weeks under her belt after she had returned when she spoke about this, she touched on a lot of different things, but very explicitly said that she was not settled on any one thing and was still trying to figure out what it meant to her. And I think all of us walked away um, no more firm about what we thought about Israel and really humbled by how much we didn't yet understand. I'll also say that um, my views on Israel have evolved considerably. Um, I went from knowing very little to working for the Anti-Defamation League, which has a very, it's not as far right as APAC, but it's definitely has a very strong pro-Israel position which I adopted um, really because it was, it was actually like the first time I'd ever lived or been around so many Jews. And that was, I think, part of that and very formative for me. But in recent years, my views have shifted substantially and we had actively chosen not to go to Israel under the current government because we didn't want any of our, our money going to support a regime that oppressed Palestinians. Um, and so weren't part of the BDS movement. Right. We were not part of the, the boycotting movement either. We were in this family of we're like, we don't know exactly where we stand and we are really conflicted. And um, but we did not want to personally support a regime we didn't agree with. And then when this trip came along, which was actively about hearing multiple perspectives and not going on a, a rah-rah tour. Um, that's when I said, okay, this is something that I am interested in doing. I can support this. And I was, so I, I suggested it when I got the email and both Ari and Noah were like, yes, absolutely. And I was like, okay, I guess we're going to Israel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just want to explain where like, I, okay. So, <laughs> um, before I went to Israel, um, I was not very, I don't want to say like not very Jewish because I am Jewish, but I was having a lot of conflicting feelings about whether I wanted to be like traditionally, culturally, religiously Jewish um, mm -hmm. because, you know, we live in Chicago and I go to a very, very left-leaning school and it's a school where I'm in a program that focuses heavily on social issues and the humanities. And so my peers around me in our small little cohort often talk about their opinions on social issues. And it's very black and white. And there isn't a lot of space for, you know, just complexity. And a lot of them, as far as I could tell, were very anti-Israel. And I learned a lot about Israel because I like had a very limited knowledge of what they were doing before I just knew that it was like there's a conflict and it was complicated and I didn't mm. understand any, anything more than that. But I was having very conflicting feelings because I was like, because I was learning all this stuff that was very black and white. So I was like, okay, I feel like I can't be Jewish without having this, you know, conflict in me. 
that was like, okay, well, you're Jewish, so you automatically support Israel, but you have to be the right kind of Jewish that completely, you know, just goes anti-Israel to be like a good Democrat, but then you're going against like your Jewish heritage and, you know, like it, it was like really hard. And so I was like heavily debating whether I wanted to be Jewish. Like that wasn't the only factor. Um, right. you know, I was debating whether I believed in God or not and like all of this really heavy stuff but mm-hmm. I was like okay I like I it was kind of the perfect thing honestly when my mom like pitched it to me because I was like oh I wish I could go to Israel and learn everything about it and get so many new perspectives and you know hopefully regain my you know Judaism in me and everything <laughs> and then yeah. my mom was like hey here here's that exact thing and I was like oh perfect and so (laughs) afterwards it definitely changed me and I feel like I am a lot more religious after going to Israel but also like even before I started having my belief issues um even before then I feel like I've definitely grown as and Noah's I as I recall when you um the combination of that trip along with the new spiritual community that you're part of, because you guys haven't been a part of that. How long has it been? We've, we, we've really been very interested in them since the pandemic because they really did an incredible high online virtually. Um, yeah, surprisingly powerful and, and moving and, and meaningful. Mm-hmm. Um, but we only became builders last year. Okay. Yeah. So, so yeah, I just remember Noah that that's what we talked about. That it was almost kind of hard to separate um, the feelings that you had being there in Israel and West Bank and what's going on in your own new spiritual community. And I just Mm -hmm. think that's so awesome. And I'm so you know so so glad for you all. And um, Elise and I went on a guided tour as well, just very briefly. And this was something that Elise saw was being offered. And we went with a professor at um, Luther Seminary in um, Minneapolis, St. Paul. Mm-hmm. And the focus um, of our group was, um, it was called Women in the Life of Jesus. And so we were um targeting in terms of what sites we visit visited something that had to do with like either mary magdalene or mary mother of jesus or mary martha of bethany or something like that but the thing that it's basically the mary tour of the, the mary tour those are, those are really I, fit, only... I fit right in all the marys, <laughs> yeah. all the marys. All yeah, the marys those... were there apparently you only got named in the bible as a woman if your name was Mary, was Mary. in the New Testament. <laughs> it seems <laughs> like it. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was interesting because it was mostly women who were on the trip, which is, you, you know, not too surprising. Um, there were there were a few men. Um, a couple of things surprised me about our tour. Um, one was how I didn't feel like it was a spiritual tour, which bothered me a little bit, a lot actually. Um, we Why? were, I'm curious. Well, we were pretty. Um, I think our, I think maybe our leader just didn't um, focus on. Like I thought we would have like you know 
nightly devotions or a little, you know, evening prayer service, you know, but it was just always like, hey, we're back at the hotel, let's get a glass of wine and go have dinner done, you know. I was kind of, I was surprised at that. I guess I thought if I was leading this or other people I know who would be leading it, we would be doing something a little more than this. Just very focused on the, um, which was great. You know, the focus was, was wonderful. She's an extremely great scholar in the Gospel of John and especially on these women that are, that are named. And she'd been before, had done it before, so that was great having it was great having that knowledge. But we didn't get to really process what we um, heard and saw each day, and uh, so I found that unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, we did that once, and I think it was because the day what had happened that day. That was the day we were in. Um, Bethlehem kind of the full day in Bethlehem we we went to um uh the day before I think we had worshiped at Christmas Lutheran and then that next day we went to the Waldorf Hotel the Banksy Hotel yeah. um mm -hmm. and then uh, and had gone through the museum there and walked along the the West Bank wall and um and then also we had gone to um, the university there that uh, is an arts, an arts college and the, the, that group. Yeah. And um, that group had uh, started the origins of that university actually were from Christmas Lutheran. They were, they kind of started out as a support group for Palestinian women, like in the basement of this church, um, you know, figuring out how to tell their stories and, and things like that. And then it kind of grew slowly. And now they're a full-blown university in the middle of Bethlehem that focuses on the arts um, and all kind of you know, artistic expression of storytelling and yeah. things like arts that. and culture, because arts they, culture, yeah. yeah, because they said, um, and, and, you know, that was the most transformative time for me, as I told you guys, um, was our time in, in Bethlehem. And part of it was not just what we were seeing, but suddenly the connections that I felt with um, my own Lutheran denomination, because it's the Lutherans there that have really caused a lot of this to happen. Um, and Can you more about that. Yeah. So, like I said, um, Pastor Mitri Rahib is the he was the um, 20 something years as pastor of this church, and he's become one of the um, most outspoken leaders for Palestinian Christians and has really kind of been on the front lines of stuff. And so those of us who lived in other places in the world, I mean, his was the name that we knew. We identified him with Palestinian Christians. And so he's the one that started that, um, that women's community center in the basement of his church. Um, you know, when it was all they had was about, you know, like the size of your dining room kind of thing, you know, and, um, and now it has grown to this arts and culture university, it have, they have 500 students right now. And so I the connection for me that was um, so important was um, when I was pastor in Evanston, Illinois, near where you guys live, and we first met um, there were, um, 
there was a couple in my congregation, Gretchen and Dell, who were older adults at that time compared to me, probably 20 years older than me or more. And they were very supportive of the Palestinian Christians and went over there a couple of times, et cetera, et cetera. And so when I went over there and discovered that they were known by the people in that university, that was so awesome. And then when I saw, um, you know, nameplates on rooms that had been given by um, different people, and I saw the names of people that I know, and then saw one room was given by First Presbyterian in Evanston. Yeah, that was really and cool. <laughs> that was, that we was like, so amazing. Oh, we know them. <laughs> yeah, not only do we know them, but I was pretty sure that Gretchen and Dell had probably convinced, you know, gone over there and done a little program and had convinced them, that congregation, to give. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that kind of stuff all of a sudden became very real. Um, but, I, you know, this conflict between the Palestinians and the Israelis is so... Um, intense and so complicated and you know your heartstrings sort of go to ones or your politics or whatever and kind of go from one side to the other and um, I know you guys touched a little bit on your experience of that but but where do you sort of find yourselves these days well before we jump into that, I'd like to piggyback on a couple of things you said. You started off by talking about how you wish that there had been more time to reflect and to digest mm -hmm. what you were doing on the tour. And I think everybody in our group wanted the same thing. We mm -hmm. finished the day every day so fatigued and emotionally spent on mm -hmm. in a lot of those cases mm -hmm. that we really we didn't have the time. Uh, we didn't have actual time, but we also didn't have emotional space to figure out a good way to reflect before we really had to wash up and go to bed because we were getting up so early the next day. There was barely mm -hmm. enough time to sit down and eat anywhere. Um, and I know they got that feedback and they weren't being mean about this or anything. It was just the way that this tour happened. And I also don't think anybody wanted to give up any of the experiences that we had. Right. Now, we went to Bethlehem too, and it was very close to the start of our trip. And I think it was, um, as, as you experienced, one of the more significant moments on the tour for a lot of us. Mm -hmm. uh, we started off by visiting a refugee center and just speaking for myself, I was really shocked to see that uh, a refugee center was actually a totally built building with paved roads, that this was not the tents that I had imagined. Mm -hmm. And they had to explain to me once they realized that nobody was coming to to change the uh, the refugee situation that was there, they started to build. And so it had been tense yeah. decades ago and changed into something else. We walked the same wall that with the graffiti that leads up to the hotel that you were talking about. And it was, um, there was a lot of interest in what was on the wall, but I think there was a real solemnity about it. And by the end of that day, that was one of the first days when I think there was just a, a lot of, crying and a lot of um, mm -hmm. delicate emotions as we were trying to process the day. It feels, I'm, I'm so appreciative that we have this conversation between our two families, not just here, mm -hmm. but in an ongoing way, because there's something, there's something really hard and weird about being Jewish and not being Israeli 
And I appreciate, mm. Mary, that you said that this was about Israelis and, or, and Palestinians, mm. which is very different from saying Israel and Palestine and very different from saying Jews and Arabs For, yeah. and Palestinians mm. and all the different ways that this gets painted. Um, yeah, I, I mixed it up on purpose, actually. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so Elise, on Facebook, you posted a photo of you um, smiling next to the graffiti that you added, um, very mm -hmm. positive graffiti about the uh, the Lutheran group that on, on the wall there, mm -hmm. the, the one that we walked yeah. by in Bethlehem. And I just could not imagine any of us doing that. Nobody invited it. Nobody, I don't think anybody thought about it. Nobody talked about wishing that they could do that. So it, it felt, felt exactly. It, felt like it wasn't our fight yes. to like let them do it because mm. like the whole, like the sense of removal was very strong. It didn't feel like, like obviously like we were Jews and we were connected to the experiences, but because we were American, we were like, okay, this is a them fight. And we can be allies, but we can't be involved. And it's so hard to have that conversation, even with other Jews, American Jews, much mm -hmm. less non-Jews, about where being Jewish and having some kind of relationship to Israel starts and stops, because it's very different for each individual person. Obviously, mm -hmm. there is a diversity of opinions about all of the policies that are that happen over there. And there's a lot of diversity of opinion and experience within Israel's boundaries. Um, I'm, and I'm talking about including the Palestinian territory or any other name you want to call it. Um, so it's it's interesting. I, I noted even from that Facebook photo, at least, that we were already having a very different experience. It, it's mm. also going picking up on what Noah said about a sense of removal. Like my mom had visited Israel when I was in utero um, and she was like, I felt like I was coming home and I've been there twice and I have not felt that either time. Mm. And I have not felt that sense of awe in that I am walking on the land of my ancestors. I am not personally tethered to that in terms of my Jewish identity at all. And I remember when I came back, like one of our challenges was tell your experience to other Jews. Um, and so I'm like, I'm going to pick my dad, which as you know, is kind of a, that's oh, a level right. five, a level seven sort right. of a thing. Yeah. And, and he, well, certainly not as, he's not an Israel right or wrong person, but he's in his eighties and he's of a generation where he knows folks who died in the Holocaust. And, mm -hmm. and, and so there's, I believe, there's a tenacity to hold on to this is what it is. And he started saying, like, I, I was like, look, we, we actively pushed people off of their land. I understand why we did it, but we did it. And we, mm -hmm. and that is a reality. And he started going back to, well, if you read the Bible and I'm like, you're not a Bible person. They use the Bible in Department of State every day. Yeah. <laughs> and and it's just so interesting because he he can say on one hand that he doesn't like what Israel is doing, but he can't separate himself from the fact that he believes fervently that Israel has a right to exist. As, as a safe haven for Jews, and that is more important than anything else. And so to your question, where are we now? Mm -hmm. um, 
And I think we've had this conversation before informally, but I think it's very hard for many American Jews seeing and feeling the rise of anti-Semitism, which right now is getting reported on, like we're seeing it right now. It's been going on for a few more years yeah. than that. It's not just Kanye's tweets. Yeah, it's, and that I think for any vulnerable member of society, you feel it before anybody else does. And then you exhaust yourself trying to convince people who are not you that it's actually happening. And so this is not a new feeling. And so mm -hmm. I, I get, I, I understand my dad's fear. And so you end up being caught in this loop, which is Israel is actively oppressing human beings. And that is at odds with Jewish values and principles and my core identity and how I identify with being Jewish. But what if that's the only safe place we can go because everyday Americans won't stick up for us and when we're right. vulnerable? And to mm -hmm. Noah's earlier point, this both implicit and explicit pressure to be the right kind of Jew if you're a leftist, which we are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or right I mean, Jew is something that applies everywhere. Right. We're and and so. And that fear of, I don't know if I can talk about my doubts about Israel with non-Jews because it doesn't feel safe. And that feels like you're judging anyone who's not Jewish and that anyone who's not Jewish will be offended by that. But there's such this fear of, you don't know what it's like to feel hated for who you are and to be like, this place is supposed to be safe while it's oppressing everybody else. And so right. I think, I think everyone on the trip came back in knots, um, being able to argue everything simultaneously and mm -hmm. think grief and sadness that this place that you are supposed to hold up as an example of democracy is not a real democracy. Along with other emotions. And along just, with, yeah. yeah grief and, and sadness was one dimension. And, and, and yet, to your point and to Noah's point, this simultaneous love of this new community that we're a part of that said you can be Jewish and you can question and you can condemn mm -hmm. and you can ask. And I was, I think we all felt this weird simultaneous both sadness and joy and community that, okay, we can still be a part of this and still ask these hard questions while being still a little hamstrung as to what our next steps are. I my, think, um, sorry. My friend Dahlia, who is two years older than me, Jewish, and heavily involved with JC Way. Um, can you say what that is? Yeah. Uh, oh my God. Jewish Council on Urban Affairs. Um, so, yeah. So they volunteer there and, um, yeah they're minor but you know very cool and so i was talking to them and like i go to them a lot for uh you know talking about jewish issues and lgbtq issues and stuff like that just because we're both in that hemisphere um and i was talking to them about the trip when we came back and all of my mixed up emotions about it and they said something very wise which was when i was talking to them about like what does a jewish state mean and what does being jewish mean they were like it's not about being you know 
like gung-ho about Israel as not being very gung-ho about being Jewish or being American or anything like that. Jewish values are about questioning and but for like a greater purpose. And so you to be the right kind of Jew, it doesn't mean that you have to fully support Israel or fully not support Israel. It just means you ask questions and that you try and make things better. And yes, we will always have this connection to Israel, but it doesn't mean that we have to support everything that Israel does. It means that we have to help Israel become a better place. It's and so that, interesting okay. because your 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 question was about how we've been changed spiritually. And all of our answers are that there are so many layers of you should that it gets in the way of anything spiritual that we can tap into. It doesn't block it, but there's a whole lot of a priori stuff that we have to get through before we can start considering that. Do you guys? Well, yeah. I haven't heard anybody say a priori in a long time, but. <laughs> Army likes listening to legal podcasts. Instead yeah. Of <laughs> up periodically. Well, I just, I, I know at least you were going to say something, but Noah, one of the things what that I learned, um, because I grew up, you know, in South Carolina, as you well know, not, not the only place I've lived, but when I was growing up, diversity seemed very small to me. It was like everybody was either black or white, and everybody was some kind of Protestant. <laughs> Seriously, I didn't know any Jewish people. I did not know any Catholic people, right? Certainly not any Muslim or anything like that. I don't think they even visited us back in the day. But um, so when I moved to Chicago um, and started as pastor in Evanston and got to know the big synagogue that was like two blocks away from us and started teaching, you know, some of the Friday Shabbat classes along with the rabbi there and all of that, one of the things that struck me about Judaism that I so appreciated was the ability to question um, the ability to question God, <laughs> to question what the heck is going on, because Christians um, very often are afraid of questions, and they sort of want um, everything to be, you know, settled. You know, this is what the Bible says, period. That's often what our Bible studies are like, and that's why people come, so that the pastor can explain to them what this story means. They don't take anything away from it other than that was very interesting. But so I've really, I feel like I've learned that from the Jews that I have known and I really, really appreciate it. And so now we find ourselves, I, I guess the other part is you were talking about how complicated um, the Israeli-Palestine situation is, which it is. And Christians in general don't want to do complicated. They want to do, you know, <laughs> what's the right answer? Um, and now our whole country doesn't want to do complicated. No matter where you are on any spectrum, nobody wants to do complicated because we can't even talk to each other now about anything. Right? So everybody has to have their particular um, side, which to me, um, makes it even, you know, makes it even more difficult. And this is just one of many uh, situations that, that we could talk about. But Elise, you wanted to say something? Or do you yeah. remember? Yeah, no, I, um, I think, uh, you know, 
when we talk about kind of these experiences and how we're processing them. And, you know, I think when we think about trips to the Holy Land, no matter from a Jewish perspective, Muslim perspective, or Christian perspective, the word that I think we hear a lot, at least in the Christian world, is a pilgrimage, right? And and so for us, a pilgrimage is something that's supposed to be spiritual. Um, and, and it's supposed to like really touch your soul and your heart and your faith. And I think for me, the disappointment I felt in our trip was I never really felt any spiritual moments. I think, I mean, there were definitely a couple like, oh, wow. Or, you know, I had a couple, oh shit moments. Like I am literally standing on ground where, you know, Jesus was or where Mary was or, you know, things like that. And, um, but really when we, it was when we dove into the current events of what's going on and the modern day history of that area that I felt like real raw emotion. And I think, so much of that and like you know i think you know mom was kind of touching on the the simplicity modern christianity seeks um a lot of that is you know you can't mix politics and faith like you just can't you can't do that it's not allowed and it's so funny because evangelical christianity has been allowed to do that because they take a politically conservative mindset but if you're politically liberal and christian you're like the antichrist. I mean, it's the amount of times I've heard like, you know, your sermon was just too political for me. I just, I didn't like that stuff was being shoved in my face and mm, icky. I don't want to, I don't want to talk about it. Um, But if I had stood up there and said, you know, um, God wants us to build walls and God wants us to, you know, protect this and protect that people would have been like, hell yeah, speak it pastor, you know, but when I talk about building bigger tables and, and fighting systemic issues, um, it freaks people out. And so I think, um, something I've always admired about the left-leaning Jewish community is that, um, there's always been a tie with the political narrative and social justice. Um, I touch on that a lot, you know, just being down in the South where um, black Christians and white Jews were major partners in the civil rights movement. Um, And, and, well, yeah, I know, we, I know, I know I, that's a very surface level comment, right? That's like a very surface level observation. Um, and there's a lot of stories to that, but, you know, we've had, um, you know, I think I primarily use that example as a way to um, kind of dig into the ways in which people using their faith to fight injustice has worked and how, you know, um you know, and, and for some, for some folks down here, you know, talking about Martin Luther King Jr. just gets old really fast. So, you know, when you, when you kind of, um, you know, show a different perspective of that and the different partnerships that existed at the time, um, and can still exist if we, if we encourage them, it kind of just helps open it up. And I think, um, you know, the, the conflict in, you know, that we all kind of learned more about and and kind of saw firsthand, I think is just one more example of something that people have been afraid to dig into because it, 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 
is that dangerous part of the Venn diagram, right? The faith and politics Venn diagram coming together. It's like Israel, Palestine is one of those topics in the middle that we just don't really talk about um, because it's scary and it makes us, you know, feel things um, and it's complicated. And so, you know, I think um, our group, at least, uh, I think a lot of people talked about how they had no idea about the ins and outs of this conflict they i mean there were people who were seeing this story for the first time i mean they just really had very little background information on um you know what had been happening the the um the history behind it the current issues all they knew was that there were some parts of this place that were dangerous and parts that we weren't allowed to go. Um, and so that day in Bethlehem for us was a real educational point for a lot of people. Um, so it was interesting to see kind of, you know, the ways in which folks kind of changed perspectives or became really gung ho about learning more about it and, um, started asking, uh, some good questions and some really dumb questions. I, I will, I will say, so there's, this cracked me up. I don't know. Well, that's good that <laughs> they might... were bringing up questions to Mary's point. Oh yeah. Yeah. What were the questions? Well, so, I mean, there were a lot of people that, you know, were just kind of like, well, who made these decisions back in the day? Like who said this is Palestine now, this is Israel now, like who, like why, you know, so there's just a lot of that kind of processing um, and, and processing of like, you know, modern, modern divisions and things. It was but very I weird. Actually, what, what that actually tells me is people are struggling to find reasons for why Israel can, can engage in behavior so similar to what Jews had experienced during the Holocaust? And is yeah. there a way to just find meaning that, if not excuses, explains? Yeah. I mean, and I think that's something where I know that I carried that in my head. I mean, it's, it's funny and a little ironic. Uh, this is from my dad again, but my dad always said that you could understand so much of a country by its history, um, why it does things that are not in its self-interest, you know, why does it not do the logical thing? And I remember when I was there the first time and it was very, I, I saw it again the second time where if you have a country that is founded on literally never again, where the Holocaust Museum has in, in at Yad Vashem, um, has these two sculptures and next to each other and they're they're in they're like a they're carved out of the wall and one of them shows a group of downtrodden heads hanging low Jews being led to the slaughter right next to another uh, like a vibrant like sword wielding gladiator like warrior type Jews and it's it could not be clearer which is you have a choice who you're going to be and you have and that was legit, like a legitimate fear. And you have that as the foundation of the nation, which is the weak got cut down. And again, in a pejorative sense, right? Like there are these weak Jews and the weak Jews are bad. And those were the Jews that said, it's going to be okay. We're Germans. It's okay. It's not going to happen. And that you have to fight for this. Um, and that 
that is embedded within the fabric of a country as much as, and we read their, their declaration in terms of like what the state was supposed to be initially, which is not about fighting. It was about inclusivity. And living up to Jewish values. And living up to Jewish values. And so you have a nation whose foundation is essentially at war with itself, which is we must fight for our survival because we're the only ones upon which we can depend. And we must be in alliance with Jewish values, which are in many ways contrary to that. And so I think you see that lived out every day. And in terms of the spirituality component, like we had, even though to Ari's point, we didn't have as much time to debrief, there were always morning centering sessions that we had that often had a spiritual and religious component. And there sometimes were group debriefs. And basically like at the end of every day, we mm-hmm. had like a huge 20 to 30 minute talk about. And, and I think my spiritual sense, it did come from, from that and from the religious experiences that we had. And it was kind of remarkable that that coexisted with this swirly WTF times a million, you know, like we had, there are a couple of, I think, important moments that we would want to bring up. And one was we had the opportunity to have lunch with um, one of our guides' families. Um, Emily, again, she is Palestinian Christian and their, her parents welcomed us in and not only was the food absolutely amazing. It was so good. Um, Everybody good. should make makluba at home. It is so good. They had this yogurt salad with like cucumber and like, oh yeah, it was and, so and, good. And that was no a spiritual awakening. Um, but <laughs> so I, the food every day, we ate so well. But we just, just okay, I'm just, sorry. So Emily, I know I, ha- I had a lot of hummus. I had a lot of hummus. Okay, it was just not the hummus, okay? It was beyond I know. Hummus, but Emily's father told the story, told this harrowing story about when her sister was incredibly sick and not being able to get her to the hospital that would, could give her the care that she needed because of the the complications, the 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 restrictions on the borders and getting through and the passes that he would need. And it was this one harrowing story that brought into focus the damage that these borders caused to human beings who were suffering. And very luckily, you know, she was, you know, she lived and she managed to get the care. And then there was this dispute about who was going to pay for it and all of it. But it was I mean, it was an incredibly moving human story. And and we loved Emily. Like by the end of it, like we we bonded very much with Emily as as with uh, our other our Israeli tour guide as well, but Karmit and and you felt them each sort of like take up space in your heart as they were as friends challenging each other with their human experiences, where you had this experience from Emily's family and Karmit would talk about her friend who died in a bus bombing, you know, with a bomb going through the windshield of a bus and the pain that she was feeling from that. And so you had them as a model to talk through lived experience through this, you know, where they're, you're, you're a casualty of it, you're initiator of it, you've inherited it. It's, 
it's all of those things. It's like, it's everything everywhere all at once, mm -hmm. kind of. Um, and, and that was really powerful. And then being on the Temple Mount and being told that we're Jews, we're not allowed to go. And yet watching Israeli guards escort um, Orthodox Jewish families who paid them for the privilege to walk them through to pray while we were just standing there. And then also while we were there, we were there at a time where in, a, the, old city. in the old city, thank you, were by the by the wall where there was um, an American uh, Jewish boy getting who was having his bar mitzvah there. And but he was not orthodox. I believe he was conservative. And there were female um, spiritual leaders there. And they were assailed by orthodox Jewish men um, for and had their prayer materials shredded um, because they were not. Again, we go back to that idea of the right kind of Jew, which comes from inside the community and outside the community. I mean, it made national news. It was so weird. We couldn't totally, we were hearing it happen, but not. They had whistles. They were like, yeah, they were. And we had no idea what was We were going like, on what's going on? And it took us later, like to that afternoon to be like, that's what was happening. That's wow. what we were hearing. And, and so that you have so much struggle over identity and ownership, you know, inside and out. The, the word we just kept saying, the word complicated doesn't do justice to what's happening over there. Um, mm -hmm. And it- Can it, I offer something? Yes, please. So we've talked a lot, we, we keep going back to social issues in Israel. And I, and I know that your podcast is, apart from the politics within uh, the Lutheran church, a lot about spirituality and, and working with congregants. I think an important thing to understand about um, about at least the kinds of Jews that we have truck with is th there's a um, an ancient Jewish myth that guides an awful lot of lay Jews, um, and it results in this uh, this principle called tikkun olam. The myth is that when God created the universe, that there were some additional sparks of life or creation or something mystical that were scattered and that the earth is imperfect and broken, that humans and life is imperfect and broken. And we are tasked with finding those shards of what was capturing those sparks of creation and gathering them again to, to heal the earth, to rebuild it or to recreate the vessels or, or whatever. And I know a lot of your listeners are probably already familiar with this. It was the theme of my bum. I was going to say, this yeah. is sounding very familiar. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think it's important for what we're talking about because there's, it's really hard to go very far in spirituality and Judaism before you run into how that is actually going to be enacted because everybody's got a different vision of that. And I'm not saying that Judaism has to be about policy or has to be about landing on one side or the other of any particular political decision, but you're not gonna get very far without having to run into some notions of altruism, of generosity to the humans around you, of, inclu of inclusivity. And yeah, and, and by stranger in this context, we're talking as much about people who are residing within Israel's borders in some part of the Palestinian territory or even within Israel. We had dinner with several different Arab families, Bedouin and Druze and um, throughout Israel who were proudly um, 
Israelis in some cases and conflicted in others. And I think <laughs> we're American Jews, so we're not really the hosts, but we are tasked with being partners because we're both human. Um, and that becomes really complicated um, both spiritually and, and politically. And just to clarify yeah. something, when we're talking about Israel, we're not talking about Israeli people who live or like anything like that. We're talking about it as mm -hmm. like a collective system of government and mm -hmm. um, military force. And to make something very clear, we 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 talked with a lot of Israelis, Palestinians alike, residing either in the borders or out of the borders, like basically like everywhere. And mm -hmm. even when it wasn't part of the itinerary, like I remember we took like a taxi cab to like a museum and um, we, we started talking with the driver about his uh, thoughts on the conflict. And he was like, I don't, <laughs> he was like, we're all human. I don't get why we have to keep fighting each other. We just want peace. And those words were basically spoken, like repeated by Emily's parents. They're like, we just want peace as well. And so it's mm -hmm. so, it becomes so black and white, like immediately where it's like both sides are so angry at each other. But when like you actually go there and listen to people's perspectives, the majority of them are not. And mm -hmm. it's- so, so Noah, I wonder, you know, Everybody has their own definition of what peace looks like. And so how do we, how do we become both advocates and ambassadors for peace? I mean, do you have to define what you mean by that first? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, and also like this is, so we went to a bookstore where um, the two owners, Daniel and Mahmoud, uh, Mahmoud was Palestinian. Israeli. Palestinian Israeli and uh Daniel was he identifies as Israeli he's from New York uh he's all he's Jewish and they own this bookstore together called the educational bookstore yeah and in I think where was it it was in Jerusalem right it's in Jerusalem yeah, yeah it was in Jerusalem and so we sat down with them and we started talking about possible solutions and I think Daniel worked in like the U.S. government before this or something like that. He reminded me a lot of my grandfather, uh, but he was talking about and they both were talking about they're like there's no perfect solution. They went through like three different possible ones and they pointed out the you know benefits of them and the disadvantages of them and they're like no one system is perfect and it's also like at the point where Israel and the Palestinian conflict is now, at this point, it's like if we keep going in this direction, it's just going to get harder and harder to find peace. And so Daniel said something, you know, very smart that we have repeated a lot, which was he thinks it's going to take the United States um, because, you know. By the United States, it. do you mean the government? Yes. And also, the, I think it's going to take not only the government, but also the people, especially American Jews, um, who can, you know, like it starts with these conversations. It really does, mm -hmm. where, you know, we just have to start trying to find some sort of middle ground. And yeah. also, right. And, yeah. and, you know, as you said, a lot of our, a lot of our listeners, probably all of them are Christian who are listening or, or don't identify with any religious community. 
And so just because we have you here for the last few minutes, I'm wondering, <clears throat> could you well, also... I just oh, yeah. want to cut in really quick. Something that's been rattling around the old noodle while we've been talking, and it kind of feeds into some to what Noah was just saying. Um, as I've been sitting here, I'm thinking, you know, we always try, I think, to solve problems like at their very, very core, right? And I think um, we think of the, you know, Israeli-Palestinian conflict as that, like, what can they do? to figure this out, right? But I think when we think about kind of something you guys have brought up before is being the right kind of Jew and, you know, how do you live with this tension of the rise of anti-Semitism and Israel being like the one place in the world where Jews can feel safe um, to an extent. And so I can't help but wonder what if the, you know, if we were to work to bring anti-Semitism down in other parts of the world, like how would that, how would Jews feeling safe outside of Israel release the pressure of the boiling pot in Israel? And absolutely. I have actually been saying that since we've been coming back, which is there's no way I can have a conversation with Jews about giving up a, a very specific idea of Israel until I can say other people will stick up for us. Mm -hmm. And And right now it feels a little like a vacuum because of, again, to reiterate Noah's point, only the right kinds of Jews, the ones that disavow Israel, you know, on the left will be supported. And you don't totally want to do that. It's hard mm -hmm. to do that completely. And, but I do believe that we, we will not be able to make meaningful progress until Jews feel safe, or at least safer, or at least it, that we've got allies. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I had a friend that tried talking me out of feeling that anti-Semitism was getting bad. She showed me a slide and she was like, no, the rates against, you know, anti-Jewish stuff. I mean, this is about a year ago. It's not that bad. And I was just like, oh my God. And I, mm -hmm. and I remember thinking uncharitably, I was like, your ignorance is going to kill me. Mm. You know, like if I, 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 I just, and, and then, and I should also say that this has given me tremendous humility and reflection on, not that I can say, and now I understand the Black experience, but I have so much more empathy and understanding for what it must be like for someone of color or someone who is um, non-binary, someone who does not conform to something, trying to convince the majority that their fear is real and that their discrimination is real and that who do you need to have care about you in order for your cause to be listened to? And, and it's, and it, it's just, I, I, I've, I've reflected on my own shortcomings in being a listener to someone who was not like me and thinking that in order for any cause to advance, we have to have the compassion and saying, I get that you're afraid and my job isn't to talk you out of being afraid, it's to try to lessen the conditions that are making you afraid. Which is your job. And was your job as a rape victim advocate. So it's like mm -hmm. it, everything connects. Well, <laughs> yeah. I was I was going to ask about um, sort of the rise of anti-Semitism in America right now. Um, oh, yeah, we know everything. Ask us. <laughs> okay. 
I'm actually Well, what is it that you wish other people understood about it? Because remember when I came to your to your house recently and that horrible stuff had happened in Jacksonville, Florida, mm -hmm. and I was like, "Oh my gosh, I heard about this and and you um and, and Gail, you were just like, "Don't even tell me what it is. I can't handle it." And but I remember you said, "But if you're noticing it, I realize how bad it's getting." And um you know, what is it that you know, sort of the average Christian or the average American might not understand about what's going on because you never see that kind of stuff, you know, right away when it doesn't affect you. Um, that's such a great question. Can you um, start your response with dear average Christian? Dear average Christian. <laughs> dear decent human being who hasn't been paying attention in this way. Um, <laughs> there, uh, I'm sure most of your listeners are aware of the concept of the dog whistle which is the the statement that signals to those in the know what the true meaning is. But if you're not in the know, it just sounds like, like a euphemism for something. And you're like, okay. And so um, the dog whistles for anti-Semitism have, have been remarkably consistent for millennia. Um, but basically when you hear internationalists when you hear global elites, when someone starts talking about the Rockefellers or the bankers. Or equating anything with money. Um, where there's, um, those are all Jews. And so that just, that just means the Jews. And it goes back to this belief that the Jews for our tiny numerical you know, size, um, that we actually control everything. Um, there's the myth of what's called the Zionist occupied government, which was promulgated in the early 20th century by the Russian government, you know, that again, the cabal that controls everything. And, and so it's hard to, when you hear Marjorie Taylor Greene with her, the Rockefellers funded a Jewish space laser, and you're like, oh my, what? You what? know, I mean, all of us were calling each other, do you have the space laser? Or yeah. when people go after George Soros, who is a Jewish businessman um, who gives to charities and a bunch of other things, and yes, I believe supports the state of Israel, where they will invoke him as part of a conspiracy. Um, there's just, uh, you hear these code words dropped. And if you're Jewish, and again, if you're a member of any group, you know who's out to, you know pretty much who doesn't like you and the language that they use. And so we're pretty familiar with this language. And so I'm sure that my friend who is from a small town in the Midwest, these words would not mean anything to her. And, and as a result, she would not be attuned to the increase of her own legislators using this language. And when we talk about Hollywood elite poisoning everybody, you know, and that's and that's about the Jews. The media. the media is the Jews. And then also, interestingly, a lot of the immigration, um, the anti-immigration language is also anti-Jewish because there's so many um, that chant from the Proud Boys, Jews will not replace us, refers to in, in some respects, there's a group called Hias, which is um, had used to work primarily with helping Jewish immigrants starting in the late um, 19th century to come to the United States, but now works in resettling immigrants from around the world who are fleeing oppressive regimes and persecution. And 
you know, they have been attacked and they're under threat because white nationalists perceive that it is a, a Jewish mission to repopulate the United States with non-white people that Jews can control. I mean, some of it just, you're like, really? Like, I, it's, it, it's just inexplicable to me where those organizations mm-hmm. are. Again, we're trying to help people who are vulnerable that need asylum, but there is, but you have that wrapped up in Jewish conspiracy that this is all about um, head, you know, pushing out white Christians. Um, Part of, I mentioned earlier at the beginning, I worked for the ADL for a few years and part of my job was tracking white supremacists. And by tracking, I mean, where are they? What are they doing? What are they saying? Are they causing harm? And Mm -hmm. A lot of those same people that I was looking at, well, one of them was Alex Jones. And he was fringe back in the early 2000s and he is not fringe now. And so a lot of the same people that I, and the ideas that were on the fringe back then that I was taking note of are totally mainstreamed now. And the web has democratized ignorance, you know, is certainly mm. weaponized stupidity yeah. and all of the other. And I mean, it does some, a handful of really good things, obviously, but. Um, when everyone can share their opinion, everyone can share their opinion. But the proliferation yeah. of these kind of alternate theories, whether it's Holocaust denial, I mean, you used to just have to explain to a campus editor, no, freedom of speech does not require you to print lies. You know, yeah. that's not what that means. Now it's it's just everywhere. And for people who aren't vulnerable to it, there's an inclination to dismiss it or not take it seriously or to be like, I don't understand it, so therefore it's not important. And yet if it does affect you, you're like, this is the same stuff I have been, that have that has sort of, that's been the clarion for white supremacy and for bad news for Jews, you know, mm-hmm. since right. the beginning. Yeah. yeah. Noah has her yeah. hand up. Yes, Noah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you in the back. Trying to go back to the like original question. I love all of the exposition you gave <laughs> and the information, the heavily researched experiences and all that stuff. I, I love it. Um, it makes me so proud. But <laughs> I <laughs> just to go back to the original uh the question about like, you know, what can people who are not Jews do or like the average American, the average Christian. Um, And I think this goes for anyone who doesn't belong to a a certain minority group is to have your eyes open, your ears open so that you can support because to to listen and to support because those are two different things, um, even though they may accomplish the same goal. So it's, and also I think trying to because you're not part of a certain minority doesn't mean that you can't, you know, try and understand their experiences through your own experiences. So mm-hmm. both of you are women. And so, you know, you, I'm sure, have faced some sort of discrimination because you are a woman or because of preconceived notions about of from people about you. And so mm-hmm. you may not be Jewish, but you do understand what it is like to be discriminated against and to hear a certain dog whistle. And so trying to understand someone else's experience through your own without making it all about you is both tricky and necessary if we 
you know, want to reach some sort of equilibrium. So yeah, totally. So smart. Can I add one little thing to this? And yes, my family is amazing. And it's amazing to be between both of them. <laughs> I think uh, originally your question was what can people do? And I think adding on a couple of specifics to the specifics you already offered, Noah, is to notice when somebody is being vague, like especially about these areas that, that Gail was talking about and use that as an opportunity just to personally in your head, notice it. And if the person is right there in front of you, ask them to tell you a little bit more about what they just said, ask them to unpack it and detail it. Because in my experience, people are really kind of brazen about the kinds of things that they wanna share when it comes from ignorance or prejudice. And once that's out there, you can expose it to everybody else who's in that conversation. You can reflect it back to them as gently and charitably as you want. And you can call it out as courageously as you feel safe doing in the moment. Because if we're going to start by saying existence is not something that's up for negotiation, my neighbor's safety is not up for negotiation, then you can always interrupt it and say, we're not going to stand for that. I know you well enough, or I don't even know you, but I bet that you would not want to see somebody perish or be tortured or be discriminated against because of X, Y, or Z. That is just one of their identity traits. Have it be about something legitimate, but not that. And also right. um, peace comes through long form conversations and not through, um, I guess like it is hard to not become angry or frustrated with someone who has, you know, the exact opposite opinion as you or will refuse to mm -hmm. see the other side. And it's really hard to walk away from a conversation or to try not to press further and really get your point across. But in the end, is your goal to be right or is your goal to, you know, bring, bring peace? So, mm -hmm. well, and a lot of us just don't um, associate with people who are different from us. You know, we don't invite people over for dinner who are of a different race or a different religion or, you know, I know it's certainly in the South, it's all about, you know, you just have family over, you know, for, for any kind. Yeah, yeah, and that's everywhere, right? So just for every occasion, because you have to be so intentional about it. For instance, I'm getting ready to just go visit um, my friends from my congregation at Hilton Head um, at the end of this week. And I've booked myself for just about every lunch and dinner possible. And um, one of the families that I'm going to be having uh, uh, lunch with is one that I um, dined with uh, numerous times who are members of the local synagogue, uh, Barbara and David. And they have humble been brag. such, huh? I said humble brag. Yeah, and they have um, they have been such advocates for the hate speech bill in South Carolina, which has yet to pass. And um, you know, so you know, we'll be talking about that. And you know, they kind of look at me as sort of a a majority culture person, like. Why can't this happen? Why isn't this happening? Because <laughs> there, there's somebody out there who's like, well, I, I don't want to give up all my hate speech. Are you That's really right. going to regulate all my hate I speech? I can't say uh, that anymore. Oh, man. What? Well, and speaking of that, here's a quick example of something that I feel like I should 
ask your opinion on, you may have knowledge of it that I don't, and I worry that it might be anti-Semitic. So real quick, um, I'm going to be putting a presentation together that I can share, you know, PowerPoint thingy, um, about my, about my trip to, um, to Israel, Palestine. I try to stay away from the language of the Holy Land, but so Elise and I did snap a few pictures of things that we thought were just kind of funny, right? Or For like seemed it, out of place. For example, that seemed out of place. The Wi-Fi extender in Jesus's tomb. Yes. <laughs> it, it, it was, That's not funny. It was in the, That's funny. The church, <laughs> the church of the Holy Sepulchre, and we're in this ridiculous line to go into. You guys Jesus. were there too, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I look up to one of the like ancient pillars and there's a wi-fi extender on it and i was like oh look jesus got wi-fi that's so, <laughs> that's so that's how the resurrection happened that's yeah how it happened yeah so anyway i have i have some funny snaps like that that i thought might be kind of cute to close out my powerpoint with another one was when we were walking the way of the cross in the old city of jerusalem which frankly was the most boring thing. It was but, awful. I hated it. <laughs> so there was this there was this one stop along the way that was supposed to be uh, near the place where Jesus kind of spent the night in jail, right? So right across the little alleyway from that was uh, this uh, business called Christ in Prison Gift Shop. Wow. <laughs> it was the prison gift shop. It was prison that, gift shop. Was, yeah, there were Man, I wish I, I wish I'd had time to go to that. But so I think all of those are funny from a Christian point of view, but I want to check out this one that I think I didn't really understand it. I took a picture of the ATM at the Western wall. Oh, did you notice that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, I think is I it? Is it we were like funny? Money changers in the temple. Is it funny or is there like a religious purpose to that? Was there something that people would be buying to purchase something for? I just want to make sure. You're talking about I back in the day, was there a religious purpose to the ATM that they had there in like, you know, when the when the temple was destroyed? Jesus was I just <laughs> don't want to I just don't want to do something that's yeah. laughing at it and well, I, not understanding it. I just so, thought okay. I'd check before I want to take the first stab at this, tell me what's funny about it. What's funny about it is the juxtaposition between this ancient religious site and for me at least, and, and then having this kind of modern convenience, like why couldn't it be a little further, you know, outside the wall or something like that? I just, yeah, that's I'm, what was I'm funny to me. I'm pretty sure it was there because nearby was like a donation box of like, help us keep this space beautiful and help us yeah. keep this space running. And so I think it was like, don't have any shekels on you. <laughs> <I know. laughs> right That's there. right. Like, here you go. And so I think it was a way of making an offering. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, in the moment, um, with that being kind of like uh, the temple ground, um, our our story that we associate 
as Christians with money changers in a temple is Jesus flipping tables. And so someone in our group said, um, I don't know if Jesus would love having that ATM so close to the temple, you know, kind of thing. And so we all kind of chuckled at that. Um, you know, I had, I just had an image in my head of Jesus trying to like flip this refrigerator size ATM. Yeah, I was like, I don't yeah. think Jesus was strong enough to do that. And he'd get arrested um, so for I, that too. He did get arrested for that. Yeah, it was. I always tell people, I was like, that was intentional civil disobedience. Like he knew what he was doing. Um, he did that very much on purpose. Um, but yeah, so I think that was kind of where a little bit of the the chuckles came from 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 well, kind of a Jesus the, Jesus story perspective. I think being um so close to the to the temple, as you say, like you're in Jerusalem. You can't swing a cat without standing on a significant <laughs> stone, right? right? So every yeah, exactly. breath of air that's there is going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you got to put your ATM somewhere if you want right. to have money. <laughs> yeah. And to be fair, you are also right next to um, one of the markets that's mm-hmm. in, you know, one of those hallways it's right like, next to the wall. Yeah, it's like, and then yeah, you know, and the it's wall like- itself is the wall itself is a retaining wall it's not a wall of the temple it's just Mm -hmm. built to hold up the land and then when you go to the top of it that's where you are at the temple of the dome of the rock you're at the Mm -hmm. the mosque you're at the site of the original temples and so you're actually i mean it would be like uh, i don't know do you if you were if you had an at if, if wrigley field in chicago became sacred and it is put an AT- <laughs> you see where i'm going yeah. so if you wanted to put an atm near it but not so close as to be disrespectful like right. could you have it on uh do you can you have it on clark at all mm-hmm. or do you need to right. move another block away yeah or can you have an atm in yeah in millennium park yeah i think um i think sometimes and well, actually, like i one I've... other one other thing i need to say that I, I promise oh I'll yeah be- yeah no you're good <laughs> I think you're wise to think about this through a, a lens of anti-Semitism because you can't control how people are going to receive this joke. Mm-hmm. And while I think we are talking about the parts of it that are incongruous and have a uh, comedy potential mm-hmm. in it, it is also a joke about money at a famous Jewish site in yeah. Israel, in Jerusalem. Right. So I think what I'll do is I'll leave that one out and I will substitute for it uh the restaurant that we um were having lunch in and i'm sitting at a table and right next to me is a dryer that's working and um i just thought you know when do i ever see you know laundry facilities right next to me in a restaurant i just thought that was so fascinated with this i thought that was that was and then the whole time she was like there's a dryer over there I was like, maybe they just don't have like a back room and they're, you know, washing their tables. I know. Clothes. And then I'm, I'm with Ari on that joke for all of the reasons that he said, I should say, as a former comedian, I think that one runs a risk because all of the context, it, it's without context. And, yeah. and that's also part of, of, of what's necessary. And also the trope is so heavily, you know, embedded sadly within, you know, the fundamentals of Christianity, it just activates that immediately. And you don't want to run that risk. Mm-hmm. even if that's Yeah. Right. So I think all I'm left with is the, the Wi-Fi dryer. extender in the uh, tomb. It's, it's a dryer and a bunch of chickens in it, I think is, is yeah. where you're at. 
I don't know of any stereotypes about Christians and Wi-Fi extenders. It's Me either. So I think it's safe. I think it's yeah, safe. Totally safe, right? I don't think yeah. that we're responsible for that. Well, thank you guys so much for being with us today and taking the time. And uh, yeah. any closing comments, Elise, or anybody? Can we do the thing where we're like, thank you for having us? Absolutely, <laughs> you guys. So much. And we'll, uh, we'll see you Christmas Eve. Before we signed off, Ari wanted to chat a little bit more and take us back to a point in the conversation where we were talking about civil rights relationships between the black Christian community and the white Jewish community. And we ended up having such a great extension of that conversation that I wanted to let you all hear it. So enjoy this little bit of extra material. A lot of people cite Growing up, a lot of people would talk to me about the relationship between Jews and African-Americans during the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. And a Jewish friend of mine pointed out to me that it was getting to the point that it was sort of rested upon as if the mm. people who did the work back then should last us for a very long time, maybe forever. Um, that yeah. there hadn't been any recent work and there hadn't been um, a reinvestment in that, in that relationship enough for mm -hmm. us to be able to claim something like that. Because, uh, I mean, I'm not saying that we need to make racism completely go away. I don't know if that's yeah. happened in my lifetime, but we can't just say Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel marched with Martin Luther King across the Pettus Bridge. That's right. not enough. Mm -hmm. And, um, this is very recent learning for me, but I've been learning a lot more about Jews of color. And so even saying Jews and blacks, it sets up a dichotomy that is mm -hmm. already necessarily false, that there are mm -hmm. a lot of Jews of color worldwide and in this country who yeah. are immediately excluded by talking about it that way. And mm -hmm. it brings up a whole different kind of anti-Semitism and racism that is a problem that nobody wants to create. So yeah. instead of talking about it as a relationship between Jews and African-Americans in this country, I think it's fair to talk about the intersectionality of anti-Semitism mm -hmm. and color, anti-Semitism, yeah. race, anti-Semitism and ethnicity, and also legitimately enough to talk about white Jews because being Jewish and white is its own problem where it's it's hard to you you get to claim being white and walk through society basically recognized as as being white and having all of that cachet but at the end mm -hmm. of the day when you're up against a white uh a white anti-semite you're not white so yeah. and there's a lot of things about being jewish that are not white even when you are of european descent you're part of ashkenazi jewish traditions and all mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I'm glad you I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. I was just going to add that also black Jewish relationships during the civil rights era were complicated too. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a tendency. I know that I for me they were like folk tales. They were aspirational folk tales. I heard about as a kid, I wanted to do it again. I wanted mm -hmm. to be part of that. That was very much part of my identity. And mm. one of my first bosses, actually at the University of Illinois, Chicago, Dr. Harvet Gray, I think I, I brought this up about, you know, back in the halcyon perfect time of blacks and Jews working together. And she mm -hmm. was like, it was not perfect. And yeah. 
she started talking about, and one of the things I've never forgot that she said is she said, Jews could leave. Mm-hmm. And the power of optional participation and and also was there was there more financial support that could potentially be withdrawn if the movement didn't proceed in ways that Jewish participants wanted. Not that there mm-hmm. was, I don't think she was implying like anything dastardly, but she was yeah. challenging my own <clears throat> simplified, perfect view of what it was like. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important too, um, to, to not, not nullify it, but to complicate it and how that affects the ways in which we participate in social movements today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, you know, for me, it's, it's, you know, I think not looking at it necessarily as like, um, you know, here is the perfect example of interfaith, you know, social justice work or anything like that, but it's a really, I might cut this off because, because people might be offended, but when I'm dealing with folks who don't, have the vernacular or the awareness or the um the experience kind of deeply thinking about intersectionality racial issues anti-semitism um you know things like that it's a great kind of like kindergarten level example of like but look what happened at this section of history, right? Like, look what was accomplished here. And then kind of like, once you get that image into the, the conscious stream, then like later they can, they can digest all of the other complexities involving in it because they started at kind of this one spot. Um, And, you know, it's also, you know, I think, the more examples I can present to folks who fight so hard against um, bringing their faith into their politics or their politics into their faith, giving an example that kind of like shows two different faith communities doing just that for something that at least in public, most folks think was a good thing. The civil rights movement was a good thing, right? I mean, some people will say it wasn't, but a lot of them just keep that around their dinner tables. But, you know, being able to give these examples of people who used their faith to fight for something that was considered political is kind of like my go-to example, especially in the South, because um, that was something that happened in Chattanooga was kind of the bonding of these two, um, you know, populations. And so, but I, I do, I do definitely appreciate kind of the intersectionality of when you say, you know, when you, when you, you know, even, I mean, I even said it, you know, a few minutes ago or however long ago that was in the conversation, I, I identified black Christians, but then I just said, and Jews assuming, you know, everyone would associate the Jews with whiteness. And so, yeah, I did. I do. I do appreciate that reminder. Yeah, so of, thank Yeah. Thank you for that. We yeah. often are dealing with, yeah, we often are dealing with, um, with our own context and what people can hear and what they can handle, you know, in teaching and preaching. Um, I'm not saying that we're always the smartest person in the room, not by a long shot, but, you know, you just kind of have to know your people and know what, know what they can, you know, know what they can handle. Know what they can handle. Yeah. So it's not yeah. only stuff is complicated, it also has to be contextual. And then, you know, Figuring out how to how to put those two together can be really really tough. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's for sure. That's yeah. for sure. 
All right. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks. Good seeing you. you. All right. I've never been in my home and thought, I wonder if there's an animal creeping behind me. <laughs> Maybe this well, I've got three. You just, you just haven't lived. Maybe this podcast is prone to animal attack.